6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Jeremiah, chapters 19 through 21. Book of Jeremiah. Uh, we are in chapter 19. We're going to uh, see a shift of gears here shortly. Now, if you recall, there is sort of a contrast in chapter 19 versus chapter 18. Chapter 18, we had the potter, the house of the potter. Uh, in chapter 19, we have also sort of a, a, uh, a demonstrated oracle, if you will. God is going to instruct Jeremiah to do something physical, something kind of dramatic, not just words, but sort of a, an act of, of um, uh, declaration. And uh, this act is going to get him into a lot of trouble. It's not just a little moral. It's not just a little sort of object lesson. Uh, we see that all through the Scripture where a prophet will... Uh, do something sort of to demonstrate his message. Uh, this is apparently even a little more than that, and we can infer that because in chapter 20, Jeremiah is in deep trouble, that is politically or administratively, for this act that we're going to see in chapter 19. Let's take verse 1 and sort of then set the stage for ourselves. Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 1, Thus saith the Lord, Go and get a potter's earthen flask. Your King James has bottle, okay? The word is actually clay jar, okay? And take of the ancients of the people and of the ancients of the priests and go forth unto the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entrance of the east gate, and proclaim there the words that I shall tell thee. And it'll go on in a minute. Now let's back up a little bit. It's kind of, a, first of all, what we have here is a jar, a clay jar. Incidentally, in the Hebrew, the word is bakbuk, which almost is a, what's called onomatopoeic. That is, it sounds like what it's supposed to be. Almost like the word gurgle, if you will. Bakbuk, it almost sounds like a gurgling jar. What this was, was typically four to ten inches in diameter, had a narrow neck, and it was intended to be a vessel for water but it is also not repairable. Not repairable. In chapter 18, we had the potter forming vessels. Remember? Here we have a vessel that's done. It's brittle. It's not repairable. So this is the result, if you will, of clay being formed and shaped, shaped and so forth. Now, chapter 18 emphasized to Jeremiah. The object there was not for the people, it was for Jeremiah. It was just instruction for him so he'd understand. And the potter, the story that we talked about in uh, chapter 18, dealt with the sovereignty and the patience of God. 
Remember, I pointed out to you that there was the, um, you know, the, the the whole idea of the um, the purpose and the person and so forth. Well, here uh, uh, we're going to shift now. This occasion is going to be public and a very formal declaration. Um, there is an analogy that I'm not going to take the time to look up today in Second Kings 19:2, if you will, where again there's sort of a formal presentation. But in this case, uh, we're going to have uh, a formal presentation by Jeremiah. And when it says the ancients of the people and the ancients of the priests, that's perhaps clumsy translation. It's the leaders, the seniors, if you will. The ancients, get, you get to cross a little bit, the idea of senior citizens. What he means is the senior, the, the men with the uh, seniority among um, uh, the people and the priests, that is both the political and the ecclesiastical rulers. And here we're going to add, well, chapter 18 was the sovereignty and patience of God. Chapter 19 is going to be almost in contrast to the patience of God. It's going to be the irreversible judgment that's coming. The irreversible judgment that's coming. This vessel that we're, we have here is going to be shattered shortly. And when, it is when a vessel like this is shattered, it's not repaired, it's discarded. And the message to the people is, they are going to be discarded. They will go into captivity. Okay? So he says to them, get a potter's earthen flask or bottle or jar, get a good clay jar, take him and take the leaders. Now, see, this is not just some kind of object lesson. It's going to be sort of almost a formal announcement of God's judgment. And it's going to be, many scholars believe that this was, this in effect actualized the judgment. This uh, an event occurs here is to not just predict it, but in effect start it. It's going to trigger, if you will, some things that God has been promising them. He says, go forth in the valley of the son of Hinnom, which is by the entrance of the east gate. Now this gate is called the Potsherd gate. It leads to the valley of Hinnom. The Hebrew word is harsit, and it occurs only here. It leads at the base of the mount there to the Valley of Hinnom. And as you recall, we've talked about this before. And incidentally, the potters, remember when we went back there in verse 18, we were down there to the potters uh, area, and that also is down there at the base of the Valley of Hinnom. And so this gate was the gate that uh, is between the, pot the pottery industrial area and, and, the, um, and the Valley of Hinnom. And so it's a natural place for this to occur. But you should also recognize that the Valley of Hinnom, as we've talked about before, I'm reminding you, was associated with child sacrifice. We're going to find God talk about child sacrifice here shortly, which is so gross and so bad that God expresses himself as if it's so bad it never even occurred to him to prohibit it. I was not a question you can't find a law that says don't sacrifice your children. It's so absurd that God didn't even think to express it. That's just God as being uh, uh, anthropomorphic in his style of address. We'll see that shortly in a few verses. But the point is, the Valley of Hinnom is associated uh, with the uh, child sacrifice, and as a result of that, in previous administrations, namely Josiah makes it a garbage dump for Jerusalem. See, you know, they made it, they made it, they, they, they defiled it with these idolatrous practices. So Josiah makes it a garbage dump. You'll find that in 2 Kings 23. For those of you who want to uh, 
chase that down. So the Valley of Hinnom becomes a smoldering garbage dump for Jerusalem. In the New Testament, uh, the Valley of Hinnom becomes a Geh, meaning the Valley of Gehenna, Geh, Gehinnom, becomes a cliche, not geographically for the specific area, but as an idiom in language referring to the outer darkness. Not Hades that is in the center of the earth, not that which is the abode of the grave, but rather the place of ultimate punishment that even Hades is cast into, we see in the book of Revelation. So the word Gehenna, which we're so familiar with from New Testament um, uh, writings, is derived linguistically from this valley of Hinnom, which becomes a garbage dump because of its previous history as being a scene of child sacrifices. So the gate that connects the, the pottery area with that area is called the Potsherd Gate. In the Targum, it's called the Dung Gate. We find it that referred to that way in Nehemiah 2, Nehemiah 3, and Nehemiah 12, to give you a few examples. Um, in Jerome, however, uh, we find in the Vulgate and so forth, there's some links to the name of that gate to earthenware. So a Potsherd is a closer name in terms of, yes, it's, it's, it's cast-offs, but not necessarily dung like you would think of dung, but but cast off the broken pottery was thrown out there. It also does, but does lead, of course, to the garbage dump, as I mentioned. So that's all the flavor of where we're going here. Uh, Go forth unto the valley of Hin- uh, to the son of Hinnom, which is by the entrance of the east gate, and proclaim there, God says, the words that I shall tell thee. So Jeremiah is taking the leadership out to this place to make an announcement. And he carries with him this clay jar. Verse 3 of chapter 19. And the Lord says, And say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah. Now you notice the plural there. That's kind of an important tip. It isn't just the ruling king at that time, which is bad news. But this is sort of a climax to the kings of Judah collectively. It's a broad judgment we're talking about. Uh, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will bring evil upon this place, concerning which whosoever heareth, his ears shall tingle. He's not going to mess around. He's going to lay it on him. And whoever hears me, his ears will tingle because of what he's about to uh, announce. Verse 4. Because they have forsaken me and have desecrated this place and have burned incense in it unto other gods, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, nor the kings of Judah, and have filled this place with the blood of innocence. That's, of course, referring to the child's sacrifice and, and plenty more. Verse 5. Um, they have uh, built also the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings unto Baal, which I commanded not, nor spoke it, neither came it into my mind. Now you may wonder what's God saying. Gee, if you didn't, he says, uh, which I commanded not. In other words, it's, it's just that he, it's not that he, they did it where he didn't command them. I didn't command you to sacrifice your children. That's not really the thought there. It comes that way in the English. The thought in the Hebrew is, not only is this offensive, it's so offensive it never occurred to me to prohibit it. Prohibit it, see? See, in other words, you burnt your, your sons with fire burnt offerings unto Baal, 
which I commanded not. In other words, that's so gross, it never even occurred to me to prohibit it. That's the, the thought that uh, is really intrinsic in the language. Neither came it into my mind. Now, he's being anthropomorphic there. You can't really surprise God. But he's expressing his offense at what they've done as being so extreme, it goes beyond even the things that it occurred to him to prohibit in the law of Moses. What he's really saying is that they've made the land foreign by making foreign gods at home in it. And they've brought in all these Chaldean ideas. And uh, that, of course, is a recurrent theme here uh, in the... Uh, in uh, Jeremiah. And if some of this sounds familiar to you, it's because it's the same thing we read back in chapter 7, verses 31 and 32. So I realize this is a recurrent theme. As I've mentioned several times, Jeremiah is not in chrono chronological order. These are collections of various pieces of his various presentations. So we'll keep moving and not try to worry too much about exactly where all these things fit chronologically, because that's not really for us, for you and I, the big issue anyway. Verse 6, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that this place shall no more be called Topheth, nor the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. And we've had that come across many times. It shows up here and also in Isaiah chapter 30. Okay. And I will make void the counsel of Judah and of Jerusalem in this place, and will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies, and by the hands of those who seek their lives. And their carcasses will I give to be food for the fowls of heaven and for the beasts of the earth, and I will make the city desolate and a hissing. Every one that passeth by it shall be appalled and hiss because of all of its plagues. Now, by the way, there's a lot going on here. There's a all kinds of plays on words in the Hebrew that you and I miss. The word to uh, that means to, to ruin the plans of Judah, make vain their counsel, so the word there is pakak, which is uh, to make empty and pour out. And that has an almost identical sound to batmuk, which is the, the name for the clay jar. So within the Hebrew, there's some puns going on here that you and I would miss, obviously, uh, because it's lost in the translation, but let's just keep moving. Now, uh, we're now going to get in verses uh, 7 through 9. We're getting to verse 9. I uh, hope I don't distress anybody, but uh, God is going to condemn some things that uh, is uh, pretty heavy-duty stuff, or he's going to, I should say, condemn. He's going to, he's, things are going to get so bad that they're going to be driven to cannibalism. Verse 9, God says, And I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters, and they shall eat every one of the flesh of his friend in the siege and distress, with which their enemies and they that seek their lives shall distress them. Now, you can take that verse out of context and say, My goodness, God is ordaining cannibalism. No, that's not what he's doing at all. Cannibalism is clearly prohibited in the law of Moses. Leviticus 26, 29, Deuteronomy 28, verses 53 through 57, where it's predicted. And if we really want to get upset tonight, we could turn to Deuteronomy 28 and read verses 53 through 57. But frankly, um, I'd just soon pass, okay? You can dig, if you have an appetite for that, 
Instead of renting a videotape on some horror movie, just read uh, Deuteronomy 28 and recognize that's a combination of injunction and also a prophecy that they'll be driven to that. Now, you and I, I think, have no capacity to appreciate being that desperate. Praise God for that. It's sort of, there's an irony here, because they earlier had sacrificed their kids to the god Molech. And it's kind of an interesting irony that they're going to be under such stress from a siege that they will be driven to consuming that flesh. That actually happened twice in their history. Once was in 586 B.C., as Nebuchadnezzar's armies indeed finally sieged Jerusalem, not the first siege, this is the third siege, where they ultimately leveled the whole city. And that becomes such a desperate siege. I think it... See, the first siege was a year and a half. I forgot how long the second siege was, but they camp around it. You and I, unless you've done some study in ancient history and in military warfare and gotten into this a little bit, have probably have no capacity to appreciate the kind of uh, situation they were in, because even modern warfare with its horrors tends to be quick and a little different. Can you imagine living in a walled city and seeing on the horizon an enemy army in the tens of thousands? Dig a trench around your whole city. I'm visualizing the Roman army. It's standard procedure. And build a wall and be prepared to seal the city off for 15 years if necessary. I mean, that's the way they went at it. That's what made the Roman army great in terms of military history. This kind of concept of a siege, you and I can't deal with. Uh, I mean, this is hard to visualize, but in those places, they obviously depended upon commerce, trade over roads to have food and what have you, and to seal off the city and just seal it off. Let us starve to death is one approach. And um, the concept of living in that sealed cauldron of misery is, is what happened when Nebuchadnezzar sealed off Jerusalem, here, here uh, prophesied. It happened a second time in Jerusalem. And that's under Titus Vespasian in 68 through 70 A.D., when uh, the four Roman uh, legions under Titus, the uh, 5th, 10th, 12th, and 15th legions, um, sealed off the city and, and uh, uh, ended up uh, slaughtering 1,600,000 inhabitants and burning it to the ground. And, and that's what Jesus Christ wept over the city and prophesied the week he was crucified. And indeed, 38, 38 years later, it came to, came to pass. So these prophecies you find in Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. You'll also find remarks about that in Second um, uh, Kings 6 and other places in Scripture, this idea of being finally driven out of just uh, desperation to cannibalism is something you and I uh, find hard to visualize, but it's also, it gives you some feeling for the, the, um, the judgment that a siege like this lays upon them. So... God says, I will cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters. That's, he's not, don't misread that. He's not saying he's going to force them to do it. He, he's just saying that because of the judgment God is bringing upon the, them, they will be driven to do that and eat their friends and so forth. That's um, pretty rough stuff. Now, Jeremiah is instructed to say that up until verse 9. Then on verse 10, he says, Then thou shalt break the flask in the sight of the men that go with thee. And thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Even so will I break this people and this city. 
as one breaketh a potter's vessel that cannot be made whole again, and they shall bury them in Topheth till there be no place to bury. Hmm. This event um, is seen by most scholars as activating the Lord's destruction. We're not just talking about an object lesson here. This sort of formalized public event uh, triggers thing, and we're going to see what the result... This gets into gets Jeremiah into a lot of trouble in chapter 20 because the number two high priest that has either the name or maybe the title of Peshur, who was sort of the sergeant-at-arms for the temple police. He's sort of a like a, a caliph or a, uh, they have terms of that in the Middle East and the ancients. I've forgotten uh, comparable terms, but basically he's in charge of the temple guard. And uh, he has a violent reaction. He puts Jeremiah into stocks. Now, when you and I think of a stock, we have sort of maybe a New England view of this where you just it's sort of a place of, place of public humiliation. We're going to discover the stocks that the Hebrews used were a little more brutal than that. But the point is we're going to... Jeremiah, because of this, isn't just a question of delivering an unpopular sermon to the people. He's formally declaring something that uh, causes a reaction. I'm getting ahead of us. That's in chapter 20. There is... Now, you have to recognize in Judea... They were caught between two power groups, the Babylonians and the Egyptians, and part of what uh, some of the people were, uh, part of the problem was that they were politically favorable to Egypt, and they were trying to make alliances with Egypt against the Babylonians, and Jeremiah saying, don't do that. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, are God's instrument for judgment. Well, one interesting thing, it happens that there was an Egyptian practice that's worth knowing. This is just some historical background, but it helps put this in context. The Egyptians, apparently, we find by our records and, and studies, had a, a, a practice of put, if there's somebody you did not like, you put his name on a jar and broke it in a sacred place. It had, as I read it and as I understand from the background reading I've done, I, I infer that it's a practice that was somewhat analogous to these voodoo doll ideas. If you, you, know, if you don't like somebody, you make a you stick needles in a pin or I mean, they stick pins in a doll or something. Well, uh, apparently the Egyptians had a practice that was analogous to that, where they took a jar, put the guy's name on it, and then broke it in a sacred place as a way of, boy, that'll get to him, you know. So um, there is, there does seem to be a, um, a parallelism here, idiomatically at least. And uh, it also is interesting because Egyptian, the Egyptian theme or identity was prevalent in the people, and that was considered uh, bad news. But uh, the main idea here is that clay can be shaped or reshaped, but a jar that is unuseful is broken and discarded, and they are going to be broken and discarded. Now, verse 12, we start verse 10 to 11, verse 12, Thus, saith, thus will I do in, unto this place, saith the Lord, and to its inhabitants, and even to make this city like Topheth, that is to be the smoldering, burning rubble. Uh, verse 13, and the houses of Jerusalem and the houses of the kings of Judah shall be defiled like the place of Topheth because of all the houses upon whose roofs they have burned incense unto all the host of heaven and have poured out drink offerings unto other gods. Now, you and I don't really understand roofs. You and I, to us, a roof is, a, you know, is our ceiling. It covers the house. In the Middle East, it ain't like that. Even today, if you visit the Middle East, 
uh, it's all through the Middle East, but let's just focus particularly on Judea and Jerusalem. Um, houses are often typically on a hillside. The roof of the house is also like a garden or a patio. That's a typical style. You generally do not have a lot of planting around the house. You sometimes do. But uh, more often than not, the rooftop is a, uh, a terraced patio walled-in place after dinner. You typically would go out there and enjoy the sunset or what have you. It was the place that you entertained frequently. Uh, you may recall um, Jesus when he gives the, gives the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. He says when he's coming, he says, let a man not even go down from his rooftop to get his coat, but flee. If you visualize the, uh, the thing on the hillside and the rooftop being um, a patio, not a don't think of it as the roof, but think of it as a, as a you know, second-story patio kind of thing. You'll have a better feeling for the lifestyle. Roofs show up like this all through the Scripture. You'll find it in Judges 16, 1 Samuel 9, Nehemiah 8, Acts 10. Remember Peter on the rooftop and the sheet and all that? Uh, uh, recognize that the rooftop was a social gathering place, the same way you and I would use our backyard or a atrium or a a place where we'd receive company, but when the weather, which of course in the Middle East is very favorable most of the time, uh, you have a, an outdoor entertainment kind of uh, uh, lifestyle. Now, the roof also is a place of idolatry. We find that in Jeremiah 32, 2 Kings 23, Zephaniah 1, 5, a lot of places. The rooftop being a center, central place of activity in the house is also the scene that corruption shows up if they go, go bad. Now, here specifically, God uh, indicts them for having set up incense to the hosts of heaven. Now, this raises a whole other thing that I don't want to spend a lot of time. I think we've talked about several times as a group uh, as we've studied the Scripture. You and I are victims, I think, of a very naive perspective of ancient history. You and I may think it's awfully quaint for them to worship the planets and the stars. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Jeremiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store and search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.